Audrey, and also um, for that very kind introduction and for all of your patience with the arrangements. Um, thanks to everybody for coming. I wrote to Audrey when she first emailed me, um, so I know that the theme of this um, speaker series is, uh, is um, um, crisis, extremes, and apocalypse. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how my work addresses those themes, but given their alarming relevance um, to the current political moment, I feel that I should begin addressing those themes. So I'm going to, and, and then actually Audrey explained to me that um, epistemological ruptures is a kind of sub-theme, and that certainly um, I, I am addressing. Um, so uh, let's see. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the, the book that I recently published, um, and then talk about the new project that has emerged from it. Um, uh, which is on the French naturalist Lamarck, um, who was, I mean, for, I, I'm not sure, maybe this is, I know this is very, very familiar. We have a, a world expert on Lamarck in the room, and maybe it's less familiar to other people, but I'll just say he was uh, uh, the author and an author of the term biology, um, thinking that that science needed to have its own name, um, and uh, of the, really the first systematic worked out um, system of what we would now call evolution, although he didn't use that word, but species change. Um, and, but I, anyway, I want to tell you how I got to him, which was through this uh, book. Um, let's see if I can figure out how to do this. It's this one. Oh, sorry. That at all. That's a recording device. <laughs> all right. There we go. Um, so uh, this is a, a book that I wrote that came out last year. Um, and the title comes from a passage um, written by the German rationalist philosopher Leibniz in 1704. And I'll quote the whole passage in a little bit. Um, but what I, anyway, I hoped that that phrase, the restless clock, would sound counterintuitive um, uh, to people, the idea of a restless clock. And it's meant to suggest that uh, clockwork um, uh, in the organizing analogies of the 17th and 18th centuries, such as the idea of a clockwork universe or a clockwork um, microcosm, uh, microcosm of, of a human body or an animal body, clockwork did not always signify what it later came to signify. That is uh, passivity, rigidity, uh, regularity, constraint, you know, sort of tick, tick, tick in a constrained, regular, passive way. Uh, it didn't always um, signify that. Um, and, and that's what that title is supposed to suggest. The book is about really a struggle in the history of the life sciences, as I see it, between two competing models of living things, um, and therefore two competing models of what uh, science of living things should be like, according to one model, uh, which I think became sort of the dominant model during the 17th century. Living things are machines, like clockwork, made of moving parts, uh, and can be understood in the way that a clockmaker understands a clock. Um, but they are essentially passive designed machines that have received their structure from some external source, um, and they function according to their design forever in the same way. According to the other competing model, um, living beings are also machines in the sense that they are made of material, fully material parts, uh, but they are not designed machines. Instead, um, they are active, self-constituting, self-transforming, self-making machines. Um, and I think that um, this alternative active mechanist model acted sort of in, in, in dialectic with the one that we usually think of when we hear a phrase like human machine or animal machine. So the restless clock is an attempt to tell the story of this struggle and, and to investigate uh, this sort of long uh, eclipsed tradition in the history of science. Um, and I begin the book with uh, Descartes, 
um, and his idea of animal and human machinery. Um, but uh, because he was the first around the middle of the 17th century to propose that bodies were essentially machines in this particular way of you know, uh, uh, constellations of moving parts bumping up against one another um, in, and, and to work out the implications of that idea uh, systematically. Um, but I actually begin sort of before Descartes himself with the sorts of, of um, lifelike uh, and animal-like and human-like machinery that he was responding to and, and developing upon because, in fact, all around him were lifelike machines um, of, of various kinds. And so the first, uh, uh, first of all, the lifelike machines, the first, sort of first category of those is the ones that populated churches and, and cathedrals, uh, automaton angels and devils and saints and so on. Um, early modern European churches were filled with these sorts of machines that you know, grimaced and chattered and sang and prayed and so whole choirs of mechanical angels and representations of God in heaven and Christ uh, on the cross and the assumption of the virgin and whole scenes from the Bible enacted mechanically. These were sort of familiar features of, of churches and cathedrals in the 16th and, and 17th centuries. Um, so, so he would have had that experience of lifelike machinery. Um, and so there are a couple of uh, examples of them on the slide. And then the other major category of lifelike machines in early modern Europe, um, that sort of other large category, I would say, is the often uh, hydraulic amusements um, on the grounds of palaces and wealthy estates that people established, anybody who had the wherewithal to, um, to uh, install these kinds of hydraulic grottos um, uh, on their, on their, in their gardens um, would do that. And so these are machines that would enact scenes from classical mythology, uh, Perseus and Andromeda, Orpheus with his lyre, Neptune on his dolphin. What do we have? That's what we have. Uh, oh no, here we have, right, um, Galatea. And, um, and crucially, these machines would also uh, playfully attack um, spectators. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, spray them with water, you know, you'd walk into one of these grottos and it would spray you with water. Maybe some of you have visited, there, there, are, there are, for example, in Salzburg, um, at the Schloss Heldbrunn, there are, uh, have people been to see any of these in, in Tivoli or in, in Salzburg? There, you've been to those? So, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that you have the, um, the same experience that people have been having for whatever it is, you know, 400 years. I went there, uh, these are, I went there with my son Oliver, who's now a teenager. This, these are old pictures, but I went there with him when he was four. Um, and, and, and that's my daughter, just not to leave her out. She wasn't in Salzburg. But um, you have the same experience that people have had for all this time, which is, you know, you walk in, step into these grottos and you have a gargoyle that sticks out his tongue at you, and you have, you know, machines that spray you with water and, and powder and coal dust. I, I didn't see any of those those sorts at Salzburg, but those existed. Um, and uh, so, so Descartes lived uh, for a while in Saint-Germain-en-Laye, uh, near the French royal palace. And the palace gardens at that time had grottos with hydraulic amusements of this, uh, doing these sorts of things. And Descartes invoked those. He probably saw them. Um, uh, it seems very, sort of very, very likely that he saw them. And he certainly does invoke them. Uh, in support of his idea that living things are a kind of machinery. And if, I think that if you look at the sorts of machines that he had in mind, the sorts of artificial machines that he had in mind, it really changes how you read that idea of his. Um, because mechanism in the context of these machines signified a quite unfamiliar uh, array of things, such as unexpectedness, surprising behavior, responsiveness, 
um, engagement. Um, and so when Descartes compared animals and, and living bodies, human bodies, to uh, machines, he, it seems to me, did not mean that they were rote or passive. Um, but at least in the first instance, he didn't mean that. Over the course of the 17th century, the idea of animal and human machinery narrowed into something passive, constrained, rote, without agency. Um, uh, so there was a transformation of that idea over the course of the century. And I have a few phrases in the book uh, to describe this new variety of mechanism. I only realized, in fact, when it was one of these moments, sinking of the heart moments when I was doing the index of the book, at which point the proofs were completely done, that I had three different terms uh, for essentially the same thing. Uh, classical mechanism, passive mechanism, and brute mechanism. All of those phrases meaning to, define, to, to um, refer to this new sort of mechanism. Uh, not the active mechanism of the older machines, but passive, rote, constrained uh, machines. Actually, I think it's OK to have at least so I told myself, it's OK to have these three different phrases, because they all refer to different aspects uh, of that phenomenon. Anyway, in the book, I look at how brute mechanism, uh, these most re reductive forms of mechanist accounts of life, uh, actually developed an important part in the service of a theological program, namely arguments from design, which evacuated all perception and agency to a location decisively outside the, the material world. Um, so. In, Right, so, so uh, classical mechanist science, this new kind of passive mechanism, interaction of brute parts, uh, developed in very close conjunction with this, with this the theological idea of the argument from design, I think. It uh, came associated, tightly connected with a theology. And that's one theme of the book, the theological roots of this informing axiom of modern science. Um, that namely the axiom that scientific explanation must not ascribe agency to the natural phenomena. Um, scientific explanations must not ascribe agency to the natural phenomena that they are attempting to explain, uh, even often living phenomena. And I'm interested especially in um, how scientific ideas continued to bear the imprint of that theology. Uh, for example, the theological principle of design informed the first ideas about physiological fitness or adaptation during the 17th century. And I think, therefore, uh, that idea of design, that theological principle of design, lives on sort of in deep disguise in current evolutionary biology. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in in the book. Um, but meanwhile, while the brute uh, mechanist natural theologians were evacuating perception and agency from nature, there were still uh, those who struggled to hold them hold matter, feeling, and will together to keep the machinery really alive and active. And these holdouts, therefore, had something very different in mind when they talked about the clockwork cosmos or the animal machine. They meant something very different. They meant a mechanism in which spirit and agency constituted part, uh, sort of, uh, were constitutive of the very works of the machinery. So um, consider how William Harvey, I got the right, yes, um, author of the hydraulic pump model of the heart, um, invoked automata in his account of the process of animal generation. Um, he was looking at a chick embryo, and he compared it to a mechanism with moving parts. Um, but he said that the parts were not moving in the sense of changing places the way, he says, the way many people mean when they talk about a mechanism of moving parts, they mean a mechanism in which the parts are changing places. But in my mechanism of moving parts, this chick embryo, it's not that they're changing, they're remaining in the same place. All the parts are remaining in the same place, but they are transforming. 
in hardness and softness and color, uh, et cetera. So it, it's a mechanism made of changing parts. Um, and this was an idea that Harvey came back to regularly, and I, the idea of um, <clears throat> animals being like automata whose parts were perpetually transforming, expanding and contracting in response to heat or cold or uh, imagination or sensation or ideas. Um, they were mechanisms of changing parts. Um, elsewhere, uh, Harvey uh, invoked an analogy that would become commonplace by the end of the century, and that was the analogy between an animal body and a church organ. I don't know, is it the same thing at Oxford and Cambridge that is like, is it very bad that I have a Cambridge, I just look like at Berkeley and Stanford, or I, I apologize, <laughs> uh, but it was a, it was a handy um, image for me to use. So, um, so the analogy between an animal body and a church organ, uh, he, he uh, Harvey suggested that the muscles, the muscular system worked like playing on an organ. Um, but what he meant by that, I think, is striking because later on, people tended to mean um, a, a complex system of interacting parts, like you see in, in an organ, just sort of interacting and moving parts when they compared living bodies to organs. But Harvey went on to sort of elaborate to say that the muscles performed their actions by harmony and rhythm as a kind of silent music. So it's a sort of a different idea. Um, he told his students uh, at the College of Physicians that anatomy was a mechanical subject. But the question is really, what did he mean by that? Because the word mechanical had different meanings and was in flux in this period. So what did he mean when he said it was a mechanical subject? Well, one way to get at what he meant is to look at what he took to be problematic for a mechanical explanation. What posed problems for a mechanist physiology? Um, and what sorts of solutions did he uh, propose? So one problem, for example, that he identified was the problem of action at a distance. And um, <clears throat> he was working from Aristotle's idea that embryos arise from a kind of contagion of a vital virus with which the sperm infects the egg. And then that raised the problem of action at a distance. After the initial moment of contact, once that contaminating element was gone, um, how did the process continue? How, I ask, so here I'm quoting Harvey talking about Aristotle. How, I ask, does a non non how does a non-entity act? How does a thing which is not in contact fashion another thing like itself? So Aristotle, Harvey pointed out, had suggested that it was like automatic puppets. Um, he had suggested that the initial contact at conception set off a succession of linked motions, like levers that would trigger one another um, in the development of the embryo. And Harvey rejected that idea. Uh, and instead, he said he, that he, would propo he proposed a different analogy between the uterus and the brain. And so I'm just the 17th century <laughs> images of a, a uterus and a brain just to show you, because what he went on to say was that the two are stri strikingly similar in structure. So I wanted to give you some sense of what he had in mind when he said that. Um, and where the same structure exists, there must be the same function. So the functions of each, he said, were called conceptions. Uh, and maybe that's because they're essentially the same sort of process. A brain produced works of art by bringing an immaterial idea to matter, and maybe a uterus produced an embryo in the same way, by means of a plastic art, he called it, capable of bringing a form to flesh. The form of the embryo would then exist in the uterus of the mother, just as the form of a house existed in the brain of the builder, as a kind of an idea. And this would solve the problem of action at a distance, because the moment of insemination would endow the uterus with an ability to conceive embryos in the same way that an education endows the brain with the ability to conceive ideas. So once the seed disappeared, it no longer needed to act. It was, it was the uterus itself that took over the task of fashioning an embryo. 
This is um, a, sort of a long way of getting around to the point that this idea that the uterus functioned like a brain, actively fashioning an embryo the way a brain fleshes out an idea and brings it to, to matter. That idea was for Harvey not only within the bounds of mechanical, but um, a model that could rescue mechanism by eliminating the need for action at a distance. Uh, another active mechanist um, was Thomas Willis. Um, <clears throat> he was actually, was he on the previous, yeah, uh, yeah, he was on the previous slide as well, but um, here he is again, uh, uh, sort of early cartographer of the brain and, and nervous system, and he described living beings as self-moving machinery. Um, the animal soul he described as uh, knowing and active, but fully material made of, um, of the most subtle and highly active kinds of particles, but material particles, which combined um, uh, to form pipes and other machines. Willis pointed out that all mechanical things need some kind of ener energetical component, like fire or air or light. Uh, and he said, any artisan could tell you that, any smith or chemist or glassmaker or lens grinder or instrument maker could easily tell you that, that any device, any artificial device needs some <laughs> energetical component. And so animal souls are no different from any other machine in that, in, in that regard. They're made out of the most energetic particles of matter. Um, and uh, the movement of these particles through the animal bodies was like a blast of wind through a wind-driven machine, um, producing all the animal's uh, sensations and, and movements. And in that context, I think it's actually striking uh, that the, um, his drawing of the nerves of the trunk it kind of resembles an organ, and he was thinking in terms of uh, organs um, when he was imagining how it might work. I think the person who traveled probably the farthest toward establishing the new science along this alternative active mechanist trajectory uh, in this period was Leibniz, with whom I began. Um, and to see how very different his meaning was when he talked about uh, 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 bodies as clockwork, um, Consider the passage from the new essays. Now I'll read you the whole passage from which I took the title of the book, The Restless Clock. Uh, so he, wrote, he was writing in French. He wrote the new essays in French. But he starts this passage by saying, in German, the word for the balance of a clock is unruhe, which also means disquiet. And one can take that for a model of how it is in our bodies, which can never be perfectly at their ease. For if one's body were at ease, some new effective object, some small change uh, in the sense organs and in the viscera and bodily cavities would at once alter the balance and compel those parts of the body to exert some tiny effort to get back into the best state possible, with the result that there is a perpetual conflict which makes up, so to speak, the disquiet of our clock, so that this German appellation is rather to my liking. So that's the, the full passage. Nowhere in that passage, among the metaphorical significations of clock, do you find what I think even by then had become the expected connotations and certainly remained um, that regularity, imperturbability, precision. Uh, and instead, you have something like their opposites. You have disquiet, unease, exertion, conflict, responsiveness. Um, it was Leibniz who developed the notion of living things as organisms in the first decade of the 18th century, and by which he meant machines all the way down to infinity, each machine within a machine in continual self-transformation. Um, having met the uh, Dutch microscopists uh, Spamerdam and Leeuwenhoek in 1676 during a visit to the Netherlands, um, Leibniz cited microscopic uh, evidence in support of his claim 
that the tiniest particle of matter contained whole worlds of living machines and that these were intrinsically active. And so, and so his idea is sort of these, every, in fact, that's how he distinguished uh, living machines from artificial machines. The, art, the parts of an artificial machine, he said, are just part, just simple parts, brute parts, whereas a living machine, no matter how far down you go, no matter how finely you divide it up, it's always more machinery all the way down, and all of that machinery is active and self-making, self-transforming. So these two traditions, uh, active and passive mechanism, I think remained embroiled in their competition for the life sciences through the 18th century and into the 19th. Um, and you can see this competition um, in the explosion of projects during the 18th century to build machines that could eat, talk, play musical instruments, write, draw, uh, perform other human tasks, um, especially. And, and, and also, more, even more than in the machines themselves, you see it in the philosophical and scientific um, conversation surrounding these new experimental machines and in the idea of the Enlightenment man-machine, uh, le machine sort of thought experiment that commanded so much interest in, uh, from the middle of the 18th century and, and really, I think, provided the foundation for thinking in many areas in, in, um, in philosophical and scientific and social questions of every kind. Um, and you can see the development of passive mechanism, particularly in the refinement of the argument from design uh, and, and application of the argument from design in physiology through that period. Um, that tradition reached a pinnacle in William Paley's natural theology um, with his famous image of the watch on the heath. Uh, and this was the text that Darwin memorized as a student at Cambridge, uh, about which more in a moment. Uh, but Darwin, in fact, inherited crucial ingredients from, for his theory of evolution by natural selection from each of these two traditions, from the passive mechanist design tradition he took the notion of adaptation or fitness, physiological fitness, which I've been saying developed originally in the context of arguments from design, which show these arguments from design were, um, the point was to show the perfect suitedness of means to ends, of animals to their environments, right? Um, and again, more on that in, in a moment. From the, so, so Darwin took the idea of physiological adaptation or fitness from that theological natural design passive mechanist tradition. From the active mechanist uh, tradition through Lamarck, uh, Darwin took the idea of species change, the transformation of living forms over time. And that was obviously equally crucial. Um, I think the tension between passive and active uh, mechanism has been tremendously productive. Uh, and if, I mean, this is something important. It seems to me I'm always sort of having to remind myself that tensions and ambivalences and sort of unresolved problems can be tremendously productive. You, you don't have to arrive at a solution in order for, uh, you, that's not the only mode of, of uh, productivity, intellectually speaking. So this is, I think, an unresolved, an ongoing struggle that has been uh, extremely productive and has and maintains a, a very powerful subterranean act activity in current biology, I think. Um, it seems to me that there are major debates today among biologists uh, over the ascription of various kinds of agency to living things. Um, and I also think that you can't fully understand the stakes of these uh, debates without understanding their history. Um, so I think um, scientists you know, may be often in a position of carrying on the debates in their current form without taking much of an interest in the, in the long history of them. And, that, and I think that's a mistake. I think you need to know where, where those debates came from in the, sort of in the long 
uh, in the long term. So I want to move now to talking about Lamarck, um, who really emerged as I was writing the book as the sort of hero of the active mechanist tradition. Um, and uh, this, my subtitle, um, which is also the title of a very nice essay, it's not my own, I sort of stole it, but uh, um, my, uh, my subtitle is a, is a reference, did I get the right slide? Yeah. Um, it's a reference to a 1995 book by the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, entitled Darwin's Dangerous Idea, probably a book that's been familiar to you, um, and um, in which Dennett, um, it, it's, a, it's a sort of defense of Darwinism against what Dennett takes to be, took to be at that time its greatest, the, sort of a, a great threat to Darwinism. That was the continuing reluctance of people, even including biologists, to accept that nature is mindless and that evolution is the result of what he says is a mindless, motiveless mechanicity with a talent for alliteration. Um, and uh, uh, Dennett at the time identified in contemporary evolutionary biology and most especially in um, Stephen Jay Gould's theory of punctuated equilibrium, a, a recurring and anti-Darwinian appeal to mind and hidden creative forces. Um, Gould, of course, vehemently rejected that claim and turned it right back against uh, Dennett. Uh, but to trace that, you know, that would get us off into a whole other quagmire. We could spend the rest of the day uh, talking about that, so I won't do that. Um, but they basically each were accusing one another of ascribing um, mind-like creative powers to natural phenomena. Um, but the original culprit that Dennett identifies in the book is none other than Lamarck. Um, he traces the ineradicable, these ineradicable appeals to forces of mind and agency in modern evolutionary biology, largely back to Lamarck. Um, and he was not alone in that view. So Richard Dawkins, for example, author of The Selfish Gene, has also devoted a lot of ink to making biology safe from Lamarckism. And on the slide, I've included some representative passages from, each of, from Dawkins and Dennett. Uh, from their writings that really do make Lamarck sound pretty dangerous and not the good kind of dangerous when Dennett talks about Darwin's dangerous idea, um, more alliteration. Um, he, he means a good kind of dangerous, but this kind of dangerous is not the kind that, that I think that he likes. So, okay, so this text on the slide, Lamarck's genetic transmission of acquired traits would be fatal to Darwinism, but it's safely discredited. Um, and then from a Lamarckian scare, um, this is from a different, from the extended phenotype. He writes, I use the word scare, oh, this is Dawkins, sorry. I use the word scare because to be painfully honest, I can think of few things that would more devastate my worldview than a demonstrated need to return to the theory of evolution that is traditionally attributed to Lamarck. So these are very um, extreme terms, painful, um, scary, fatal, devastating. Where does all that heat come from? Um, you know, because Scientists and academics disagree with each other all the time, but, but not necessarily in such extreme terms as painful, scary, fatal, devastating. Um, so I got interested in tracing that sense of menace back to see where it led. Um, I think that Dennett and Dawkins and other neo-Darwinists have clear, clearly seen Lamarckism as a threat not just to a particular scientific idea or theory, but to a whole worldview and even to modern science, to reason itself. Why, why have they seen it that way? Um, well, in order to answer that question, I think you have to go back to Lamarck's own moment when he did represent, I think, this alternative form of mechanist science, alternative from the active mechanist tradition that I've, uh, sorry, from the classical brute mechanist 
uh, kind. Uh, he represented, I think, the crowning achievement of the active mechanist tradition in which force and agency were constitutive of the, of the machinery rather than external to it. Rather than externalizing force and agency and evacuating them from nature to the province of a supernatural god, Lamarck instead naturalized them so that they were constitutive of animal machinery from within. And I think that that became threatening at a certain point at the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries um, in particular. So in the time that I have left, I want to talk about Lamarck's um, model as a sort of culmination of the alternative active mechanist tradition in science. And, and I want to also just talk briefly about the banishment of Lamarckism from the halls of mainstream uh, science that took place around the, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Um, I've become very much interested in the terms of that banishment um, of Lamarck and Lamarckism from legitimate science, terms which I think were defined at the end of the 19th century, but which had much older roots. Um, and I'm interested in the possibility that these terms reflect the sort of science that Lamarckism represented, specifically the location of evolutionary agency in Lamarckism. Lamarck located evolutionary agency within, very definitely within, the evolving organism, not outside of it. And I think that was uh, the kernel of what, got, what became problematic. Um, so I'll come back to that. Um, in a moment. But going back to that feeling of menace that Dennett and Dawkins express, it has a long and complicated history. Lamarck spent a good century or more between the late 19th and the late 20th centuries, mostly in exile, not, and I, let me just hasten to say not entirely in exile, but um, I mean there, um, but largely in exile from legitimate science. In 1920, the word Lamarckism, according to the Harvard entomologist William Morton Wheeler, des, uh, designated the ninth mortal sin in biology. But Lamarck was not a miracle monger. On the contrary, he was a very exhaustive and rigorous naturalizer. Um, that he, this, the slide uh, includes the, um, the momentous chart from Lamarck's Philosophie Zoologique, uh, showing the emergence of fish and, and reptiles and birds and mammals from the branching transformations of spontaneously generated lower organisms, worms, and, and, and fusoria. Now that was a really dangerous idea, dangerous in the good sense, uh, the kind of dangerous that Dennett ought to like, I think, and Dawkins. Um, this was a revolutionary kind of naturalism. And I think this misidentification of Lamarck as the major threat to secular science has not been accidental. I think it was precisely because of the sort of naturalism that uh, Lamarck uh, advanced that he fell out of favor at this key moment in the cultural political and institutional history of biology. And that key moment was the establishment of biology in the new German research universities around the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries. Um, in that cultural, uh, sort of cultural, political, institutional context, um, Lamarck's naturalism was dangerous. And, and Darwinism, in order to be established as the reigning theory for the 20th century, had to be purged of its dangerous Lamarckian heritage because Lamarck's approach threatened a kind of limited partnership arrangement between science and theology in the new universities. So to explain what I mean by a limited partnership uh, arrangement between science and theology, um, let me go back to the fact with which I began, namely that the classical mechanist paradigm coming out of the mid to late 17th century and developing through the 18th assumed and indeed was predicated upon the existence of a supernatural god. 
The classical mechanist paradigm cast the world as a machine whose parts were made of inert matter, moving only when set in motion by some external force. Um, and the 17th century banishment of agency and perception and consciousness and will from nature and from natural science gave a monopoly on all of those attributes to an external god. So here's Paley again with his watch on the heath. Um, I have the right text, yes. In crossing the heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I know to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had given before, uh, that for anything I knew, the watch might always have been there. By the time Paley um, wrote those words, uh, the model had been developing for over a century from Robert Boyle's first uh, expression of it. Let's see, where did I have, I guess I had that on the last slide, the Boyle version of it. Um, Boyle's first expression of it in the last decades of the 17th century. Um, and so the slide also has the disposition, the disquisition on the final causes of natural things, 1688, which was one of the earliest expressions of what came to be known as the argument from design. But what I think people often don't notice in that, I'll just go back to the later version, what people don't sort of pay attention to about the watch in that famous passage from Paley is that the watch may be unlike a stone in its mechanical complexity, but it is very much like the stone in its passivity and inertness, just lying there on the ground waiting to be kicked aside. What makes it implausible that this, that this very intricate and elaborate thing um, could just have been there all by itself with no creator, is that it's also fully passive. It doesn't it seem imaginable that it could have constituted itself there. Um, so I think this represents a fault line in the history of modern science that is worth attention, namely that the central principle of modern science responsible for defining scientific explanations as distinct from religious and mystical ones, namely the exclusion of appeals to agency and will, itself relied for its establishment on a theological notion, the divine engineer, and a theological program, the argument from design. To cast the world as passive machinery was to banish mystical spirits and tendencies from science, to be sure, but it also had the effect of firmly establishing a kind of supernaturalism. Will and force and agency became external um, to science and needed to have some external source. And mechanist physiology in particular developed in close conjunction with the argument from design, especially in England, as a distinctively English theological slash scientific uh, tradition emerged. Discussion of physiological fitness and adaptation from Robert Boyle onward, discussion that later became so crucial uh, to Darwin, first uh, developed from the late 17th um, to the early 19th centuries in this tradition of arguments from design. The writers in this tradition, from Boyle to Paley, very meticulously compared physiological mechanisms to artificial ones. Uh, the favorite example was the comparison of the eye to a lens instrument, such as a microscope or a telescope or a camera obscura, to demonstrate the existence of God by the evidence of mechanical design um, in nature, God's artifact. This classical mechanist model was, again, I'm sort of hammering this over the head, but it was a static, passive model of animal machinery. Accordingly, animal machinery received its structure all at once upon creation from an external supernatural source. But as I've been saying, there were also those who objected to that removal of agency from nature, and 
the rendition of nature as purely passive machinery and the supernaturalism of that mode of science. Leibniz, most notably, um, rejected what he saw as his contemporary's tendency, he said, to summon God ex machina and withdraw all force of acting from living things. That's um, uh, quoting from him. He saw it as, this as a kind of marionette mechanism with God as the puppeteer, such that when a person um, thinks and tries to move his arm, God is actually moving the arm for him, an idea so absurd its advocates ought to have known better. Um, so that it was an absurdity uh, in, in his view. An alternative tradition of active mechanist science is importantly influenced by Leibniz, naturalizing force and agency rather than outsourcing them, was especially strong in the mid uh, to late 18th century, both in physics and in the life sciences. And it was this tradition that produced the first ideas of species change. Um, so, you know, I've been suggesting that these two ingredients of Darwinism, Darwin took the idea of physiological adaptation or fitness from passive mechanist arguments from design. And meanwhile, uh, so the idea of species change came out of this active uh, mechanist tradition, which considered living uh, systems as dynamic, self-transforming mechanisms. These mechanisms did not receive their structure all at once or from an external source, but rather they developed their organization over time and from within. Leibniz himself described living nature as an, a, a, a perpetual state of flux in which certain living beings would then arrive at the level of having minds and, and the capacity for reason. But it was a gradual process taking place over time and not a single moment of creation. Around the middle of the 18th century, this idea of a flux of living forms began to take root in new ways, especially in France. Um, in 1750, for example, um, the materialist uh, polemicist uh, Lamétrie gave it his own expression. Um, unlike Leibniz, uh, unlike Leibniz, who identified God at the origin of this process that ultimately produced uh, the rational human mind, Lamétrie saw no problem in imagining that an intelligent being could come from a blind cause, as he said. After all, he, he pointed out, it takes no particular genius on the part of parents to make children. So why should it, <laughs> why should it take any intelligence to produce intelligent beings? Um, like Leibniz, Lamitri thought the process of producing such a machine must have taken place over a very long time. And his model of um, living machinery was essentially the antithesis of the classical mechanist model. Human and animal machinery on Lamitri's model was essentially active um, and sensitive and responsive, full of sensation and passion. Uh, Man and Machine, if you've read it, Le Machine, his uh, famous text is quite racy. My students are always surprised when I sign this. They, they, you know, it's, a, it's a shock to open it up and discover actually what's inside it, which is much racier than the title would lead you to believe. Um, so um, actually, let me go back to the previous slide for a moment. So on the left side is, um, is uh, La Maitrie himself looking characteristically jolly. He was apparently a very... Uh, fun-loving kind of a guy. And on the right side is uh, a freshwater polyp or hydra that um, was an organism that the Genevan naturalist uh, Tremblay had studied exhaustively several years earlier. And Lamitri considered the polyp to provide evidence for his claim that living matter was self-organizing um, because polyps, when you cut them into pieces, each one, each piece would generate a new polyp, a new hydra. And they could regenerate themselves into full animals from each piece. And so he wrote that uh, it could not, this animal could not fail, this is what this passage is about, this anim animal could not fail to produce unbelievers 
because it indicated an internal rather than an external source of life's order. Um, so here's the passage in which uh, La Maitrie described uh, the process um, of newer forms of animals emerging gradually from older forms. Um, and uh, so he, he basically describes over many, many, many generations um, forms of life emerging from more primitive forms and becoming more complex. And, um, and, uh, and it's, a, it's an evolution-like, uh, although he doesn't use that, that, that term meant something different at the time, but he, it's an, what, it, it, it describes the transformation of, of forms of life, of species. Um, La Maitrie's friend and protector, the French mathematician and philosopher Maupertuis, offers another example of an active mechanist uh, view of living machinery around the middle of the 18th century. Um, Maupertuis, so th th there's sort of a flowering of this idea around the middle of the 18th century in France. And I think it's a generation of very uh, uh, earnest, rigorous materialists, people who really want to try to understand natural phenomena in exhaustively naturalist and materialist terms, who are trying to work this out. <coughs> they, they arrive at uh, I mean, they, at the idea of gradualism, it can't just have happened all by. If, it, if it's going to have been a self, uh, a self, a process of self-making, it can't have happened in a single moment. That would be miraculous. It has to have happened over, over many generations. Um, so Maupertuis is another one of these uh, people who are thinking in these terms, and he thought that only such an active view could explain how the elements of living creatures came together and how the parts knew what to form. How do some parts know that they're supposed to form an eye, whereas other parts uh, make an ear uh, or some other part of the body? He said, well, the elements of matter, the very elements of, of, of living matter must contain some principle of, principle of intelligence or perception in order for them to know what they're supposed to do. And he thought it was implausible to suggest that living beings had come, either come together randomly out of brute, unintelligent parts. That seemed implausible to him. Uh, how that could happen, and but but he also said it's equally implausible to think that God had used brute, unintelligent parts to build living beings the way an architect builds with stone, builds a wall out of stones or bricks. That wasn't what a living thing was. Rather, Maupertuis said, the elements themselves endowed with. Um, let's see if I have. Yeah, this is him saying this. The elements themselves endowed uh, with intelligence arranged and united themselves to carry out the vision of the creator. Not an externally imposed construction of blocks or stones, but a confluence of sentient participants. If these elements combined too readily or forgot the order of the father and mother animals, Maupertuis imagined, then they would produce a new species. Um, so living forms were not the static products of a divine engineer, but but they were continually producing and transforming themselves. Lamarck's theory was the crowning achievement of this alternative tradition of active mechanism. Um, instead of appealing to an external source of agency, as in the argument from design and the classical mechanist physiology that, that the argument from design informed, Lamarck uh, proposed to naturalize living agency, to consider it a, a natural force like the forces of contemporary experimental physics, like gravity or electricity or magnetism. And this force, he said, drove living organisms to compose themselves and elaborate and complicate their organization over time. The pro that process began with the very simplest forms of life, the most rudimentary organisms, just an animated point, uh, which uh, Lamarck assumed was spontaneously generated from inanimate matter. So the whole process begins with spontaneous generation. Um, and organisms then developed and grew from, from that point, principally as a result of their own movements, um, the movements of fluids within them. But 
Okay, so they're being driven by this force of life, pouvoir de la vie, upward, upward striving, complexifying tendency, which is a natural force like electricity or magnetism or, or gravity. But at a certain point, another thing happens, which is that as they become more and more complex, at a certain point, um, another cause of transformation begins to act as well, uh, and that uh, so and he says it's at the level of birds and mammals, um, and this is the more familiar aspect of Lamarck's theory, the one that we all learn through the example of the giraffe stretching its neck to reach the high up leaves or fruit, and then passing on a just tiny, slightly short, longer neck to its offspring. Um, so according to Lamarck, organisms after a certain level of complexity could transform themselves by means of their habits and ways of life. Their willful responses to their, the conditions in which they found themselves in their own actions, in other words. Um, and I'm oversimplifying because actually he has a whole spectrum of forms of agency, uh, sensibility, uh, responsiveness. You know, he, he has a whole kind of gradation of these from the, from the animated point on upward. But at the level of birds and mammals, there becomes a, uh, there, it com comes into being a willful responsiveness and behavior that, that begins to play a role. So by means of habits and ways of life and willful responses, organisms transform their own parts and organs in tiny, tiny incremental ways, uh, which can then be inherited in the next generation if they're shared by both parents. That's how he uh, surmised it must work. They slowly uh, enacted bodily changes um, in individual creatures that could then be reproduced. So Lamarck, in other words, assigned the crucial role in his theory of transformations of living forms to creatures' own agencies of various kinds. Um, so here's Lamarck uh, talking about will. When the will determines an animal to perform a given action, the organs that must execute this action are immediately provoked by the affluence of subtle fluids to carry it out. It's all material. I mean, it's, it's a materialist theory. Many repetitions of these acts of organization could then fortify, extend, develop, and even create the necessary organs. Okay, so we have these many different forms of agency at work within the living being shaping it and reshaping it and transforming it and complexifying it uh, e uh, sort of continually. And Lamarck argued that this had to be the case. Each creature ha uh, had, had to be the result of this sort of process because otherwise, if each creature instead owed its organization to a force entirely exterior and foreign to it, then instead of being animate machines, animals would have been, he said, totally passive machines. They would never have had sensibility or the intimate sentiment of existence that follows from it, nor the power to act, nor ideas, nor thought, nor intelligence. They would, in short, not have been alive. So it's in the essence of a living thing to have agency. The notion that living things produce themselves by their own agency was controversial. Uh, Lamarck's fellow naturalist and critic, the devout Lutheran zoologist Georges Cuvier famously rejected it. Um, and Cuvier uh, equally famously wrote Lamarck's eulogy. Rarely can a eulogy have offered fainter praise. He, he basically said that nobody had uh, found Lamarck's uh, theory interesting, uh, uh, worth attacking since it was so absurd. Uh, that's Cuvier's view, right? That was what it said. Um, uh, and he said, it rests upon the arbitrary assumption that desires and efforts can engender organisms, and an idea that might amuse the imagination of a poet but could never persuade a true anatomist. Now, I, I think there's a politics to that. Why does Cuvier 
he makes the idea sound absurd, but the reason why he's committed, I think, the reason why he's committed to the absurdity of that idea is its theological implications. It, it, it flies in the face of the argument from design. If creatures are making themselves, then they are not the products of an external designer. And Cuvier um, uh, believed in the argument from design. Lamarck, actually, when Lamarck commented explicitly on the argument from design, he did, in fact, reject it. Uh, he argued that God was uh, only indirectly the creator of the observable world, acting through the intermediary force of nature itself, and was certainly not a reasonable being. So it was a mistake to attribute intentions or goals to nature, as the natural theologians did. And Pietro, I think you you've said, I remember you saying uh, a few years ago in a, in a meeting that you, you think he was a, an atheist, Lamarck, right? So he refers to God from time to time. But clearly, it's a, it's a materialist theory. It's an atheistic theory. He so says, it's What's that? He says, since we can only know physical objects, right, right. We, God doesn't make any sense. Right, right. So it's overdetermined that Cuvier would have disliked that. Yeah. Um, OK. So I, sorry. Okay, I want to jump now to consider the, the ultimately um, more decisive recasting and rejection of Lamarckism that came several decades later at the hands of the German biologist August Weismann. This is the last little episode, and then I'll be done. Um, whose interpretations of both Lamarckism and Darwinism became standard in the 20th century. Dawkins and Dennett, with whom I began uh, earlier, both describe themselves as Weismannists. So Weismannism is powerful still. Um, and the Darwinism of this redefinition eliminated both of Lamarck's internal agencies, well, all of his internal agencies, the upward striving pouvoir de la vie, the complexifying tendency, also the, the role of habit or will. Both of those played a role in Darwin's thinking, um, and even more so in the leading Darwinists of the 19th century. But let me just say, you know, Darwin, he was, uh, he was very torn and uneasy and conflicted about the idea of an upward striving, complexifying force. That element of Lamarckism, he, 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 he played with it. Sometimes he believed it, sometimes he didn't believe, he rejected it. That was problematic for him. The idea of what came to be called the inheritance of acquired characteristics, the giraffe stretching its neck, right? Darwin never had a problem with that idea. It is in every edition of The Origin of Species through to the very last edition. He, 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 it, it was unproblematic to him. He assumed that was the case. So in that sense, he was a, a Lamarckian. Um, so let's see. The Darwinism of, of Weismann's redefinition eliminated all of that from Darwinism. Um, and the salient point about Weismann for me is his location of evolutionary agency outside the organism. He, his insistence that organisms have no evolutionary agency of any kind, no experience or behavior on the part of individual organisms could ever change the machinery of inheritance, Weismann said. He, he posited an unbreachable barrier separating somatic body cells from germs or reproductive cells. He, um, and came to be known as the Weismann barrier, and he insisted that no changes taking place in the somatic cells could ever be transmitted to the germ cells. Uh, this this so-called Weismann barrier eliminated the possibility of inheritance of acquired characteristics. The emblem of Weismann's theory was an experiment in which he chopped the tails off several generations of mice in order to show that their offspring had perfectly healthy tails. Um, and now, Weismann himself acknowledged that this experiment had no bearing on Lamarck's theory because it tested neither an intrinsic upward complexifying pouvoir de la vie, that it has no relevance to that idea, nor the transforming effects of habit or will either. 
Um, so, and he knew that because he was a smart guy and he was perfectly aware of that, but he said he was, it, it, would, it would be useful to defeat the popular version of belief in inher inheritance of acquired characteristics. So it was sort of a spoof rather than an experimental refutation, but it was very powerful and it continues to be powerful. So these are images from the internet, uh, um, sort of recent images from the internet to show that, that this is still, I think in, also in biology classes, people are often taught, uh, you know, taught that Weismann put an end to Lamarckism with this experiment that disproved it. And it's just absolutely false. Um, so the Weismann barrier separating somatic cells from germ cells was in fact a barrier separating individual agency from evolutionary transformation. Individuals acting in the world can alter their somatic cells, but that will never have any evolutionary effect. Um, and it remained that that is, a denial of evolutionary agency to organisms, when it became a core principle of neo-Darwinism, when, when Francis Crick restated it as the central dogma of molecular biology, uh, that there can be no reverse transcription from protein to RNA to DNA. Transcription only goes from DNA to RNA to protein. Uh, that's the central dogma, um, so-called, Crick called it, of, uh, of molecular biology. It's essentially a restatement of the Weismann barrier in the language of genetics. Um, so Weismann set up this lasting barrier between um, individual agency and evolutionary. Oh, sorry. I, I think I'm a slide ahead of myself. Um, set up this lasting barrier between evolutionary agency, uh, individual agency, and evolutionary transformation. But why did this place take? Uh, why did this change take place? Oh, should I be finishing? Okay, let me know if I'm going on too long. This is my last little thing. Um, why did it take place when and how it did this, this change? I think it could be significant to note the environment in which Weismann was working, namely the emerging German research university, where, as I said earlier, the science and theology faculties struck a kind of a bargain. The science faculties would restrict themselves to demonstrations in ever more specialized, minute detail of the mechanical complexity of natural forms. But this was a local and, in some sense, fundamentally passive mechanism. And they would leave a monopoly on questions of meaning and will and agency to the theology faculties. So in other words, this was a kind of an institutional application of the argument from design, which had banished agency to the province of a supernatural god, leaving behind a mechanical world that was infinitely intricate but fundamentally passive. Weismann uh, subscribed to the established scientific axiom that agency was supernatural, operating only outside of nature's machinery. He described uh, purposefulness, the source of meaning and, and direction, as lying, he said, beyond, beyond and behind the mechanism of the universe, in the province of what he called a spiritual first cause, capital F, capital C, or a teleological universal cause, capital U, capital, with capital letters suggesting uh, divinity, I think, or some larger something. Um, his mechanist approach to biology was overtly teleological, as he himself emphasized. He wrote, without teleology, there would be no mechanism, and without mechanism, there would be no teleology. His conception of the universe was accordingly, as he also emphasized, absolutely opposed to that of the materialist. It was not a materialist conception. Um, this teleological anti-materialist, in fact, dualist form of mechanism, had emerged over two centuries in conjunction with the argument from design, and it fit comfortably into the world of the new research universities, where it supported this limited partnership between the science and theology faculties. In contrast, a, a Lamarckian naturalization and materialization of agency and will violated the terms of that partnership. 
when Weismannism uh, came to dominate biological thinking in the United States um, in the early to middle decades of the 20th century, it was once again crucially transmitted by someone who had come up within the same world of the German Research University, and that was Ernst Meyer. Meyer uh, studied biology at the University of Berlin in the, the mid-1920s, and he got his PhD in 1926. And his advisor was the ornithologist Erwin Stresemann, who's on the other side of the slide, um, who was a great admirer of Weismann for having, he said, vanquished Lamarckism. Stresemann was a firm subscriber to the passive mechanist view of living forms. He wrote, for example, an animal does not act for itself, but under a higher commission. Animal non agit sed agitur. An animal does not act, but is acted upon. And he endorsed the, the view that the animal does not think, does not reflect, does not establish aims for itself. And if it nevertheless behaves purposely, purposively, then someone must have thought for it. So notice in both of those expressions how the passive mechanism of the animal implies a, a higher power of someone with a capital S. When Meyer went to New York in 1931, he brought along his training and his influences with him. Um, by then, at any rate, the United States had been importing the German uh, model of the research university with its institutional culture and practices, particularly in biology, uh, for more than half a century since the founding of Johns Hopkins um, in 1876 on the, temple, on the template of the University of Berlin. So in other words, I think American biology was a well-prepared soil into which to plant Weismann's ideas and the model of science that they represented. Now, I absolutely don't mean to ascribe theological motivations to Meyer himself. On the contrary, he reminisced, in fact, that he had first become interested uh, as a boy in reading the work of naturalists, such as Ernst Teckel. He said, in order to have ammunition about the Bible and religion. And I, and I certainly wouldn't ascribe any theological motivation to Dennett or Dawkins. Dawkins is the leading missionary of atheism now. Um, but rather, I would just point out a, a, a sort of ironic, a hidden and, and ironic historical origin of the dogma that they have all defended with such force and power, because in defending it, they are heirs, um, ironically, I think, to a, a centrally English theological tradition, the argument from design, to the classical mechanist science that came conjoined with that theological tradition, to the originally German institutional application of this science theology partnership in the first modern research universities, and then to the American importation of that German model of research science in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So when, when biologists talk about the evolutionary synthesis, they mean the neo-Darwinist union of evolutionary theory and genetics. But here I'm suggesting a different meaning for evolutionary synth synthesis, which would be something like an Anglo-Germano-American <laughs> institutional, intellectual, scientific, and the especially theological um, synthesis. Dawkins takes the Weismann barrier, recast as a central dogma, to be a, the all-important firewall between science and religion, keeping scientific explanation free of teleological appeals to purpose or agency. But a wall has two sides, and in historical terms, this one was first built to serve the reciprocal function, to be a firewall protecting theology from science, ensuring a monopoly on agency to a supernatural god, and to his theologian interpreter's ownership of the ultimate questions of the meaning and essence of life. Lamarckism had to be eradicated from science in that, in that earlier context, in other words, not because Lamarck appealed to miracles and occult forces, but just the opposite, because his theory represented the most rigorously naturalist and materialist science of, of the mid to late enlightenment, one that sought to naturalize even the agency responsible for producing living nature. Now that, I think, was a truly dangerous idea. And I will stop there. I'm afraid I've already gone over. Thanks.